We can turn with me your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 2. We are continuing our summer series on texts that are notoriously taken out of context. I think Acts chapter 2 certainly is one of them in many ways. We will start the book of Colossians in September. So Colossians got a lot of good Christology, good application. So we'll do uh, Colossians in September. Uh, But we'll finish Acts 2 this morning. Uh, We'll look at verses 37 through 47. So I'll just read those verses for us. So Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off as many as the Lord, our God will call. With many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all, as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Amen. Well, let us pray. Well, Lord, our God, we are thankful that Christ is both Lord and Christ. Thank you that he has been raised. Thank you that he ascended. Thank you that he is seated at your right hand. And from thence, he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. But we're thankful that he is declared to be the son of God with power. He truly is David's greater son. And we're thankful that he completed his mission and still continues to complete his mission in the salvation of souls, even as the spirit has been poured out. And we're thankful that blessed visible outpouring on that day of Pentecost. And we're thankful the invisible work that you continue to do among your people. Thank you for the command to preach. We're thankful, oh God, you work in preaching to prick hearts, to change lives, and to give, uh, to take stones of flesh and uh, to remove uh, hearts of stone and give uh, hearts of flesh. Thank you that you do this by your grace and mercy. Thank you, oh God, that you do cut people to the heart. And we pray, oh God, that you do this today that you would save sinners, that you would show them their sin, show them their need for Christ. And we pray, oh God, for your saints as well. If there's anything that we are blinded to, anything we don't see, we pray, oh God, that you would cut our hearts as well, that we might conform our ways to your ways, that we might conform our will to your will. And we pray, oh God, that we would honor and glorify you in all that we do. So we pray, oh God, that you would be pleased to save sinners. We pray, oh God, that you'd be pleased to uh, strengthen your saints We pray, oh God, that you give us illumination from on high as we come to your word. Thank you for it. Thank you that it edifies. Thank you that it is good. And we pray in all things you would be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as I said, we are continuing that series that focuses on texts taken out of context. Certainly Acts 2, there are many different traditions, I believe, have taken it out of context. We've kind of nailed Pentecostalism the past two weeks. What is the place of tongues? What is the purpose of the Spirit? 
I tried to uh, uh, emphasize that the outpouring of the Spirit signifies that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. It signifies something about the Messiah, signifies something about who he is, signifies something about his power and his might in redemptive history. That's the emphasis, not on the gifts themselves. And then we come in verses 37 through 47, we see uh, further uh, the response to Peter's preaching and the response to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. I think verses 37 through 47, several traditions take several things out of context here. We're going to deal with paedo-baptism, infant baptism in verse 39, and we'll deal with, deal with this, uh, this uh, desire for communalism, which is what we see in verse 45. So I'll try to dispel some misnomers concerning this. Hopefully you see that. If you don't disagree with me, that's okay. This is what I believe is right, and you can still be friends with me after, and that's fine. So in any case, uh, what we see in verses 37 through 47, we see the response to pre uh, Peter's preaching, including what sinners do at conversion and what sinners do afterward, how sinners are saved and how sinner believers are supposed to live after their salvation. That's what we see in these verses for us. And we'll look at this under three headings this morning. First of all, we'll see a call to believe, verses 37 through 40. Secondly, we'll see the duty of believers, verses 41 and 42. And lastly, we'll see the life of early believers, verses 43 through 47. So the call to believe, the duty of believers, and the life of early believers. So let's first look at the call to believe in verses 37 through 40. And again, the context is the day of Pentecost. The Spirit has been poured out. The, 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 the apostles are speaking in tongues. Uh, the, those who are there at the day of Pentecost need that explanation. So Peter gets up in verses 14 through 36, and he preaches. He explains what's going on. This is in accord with Joel 2 and the promise of the outpouring of the Spirit. Then he goes on to highlight the Christ or Jesus, whom they killed, is the Christ. Jesus has proven to be who he says he is. Jesus has proven to be the Christ. And so then this is the response to that very preaching. And notice what we see in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? There's this piercing that happens. There's this work of the Holy Spirit that we see working internally. Certainly that we see the outpouring externally, but the more important thing to highlight is the work of the Spirit internally. The Spirit working with preaching. What is it that cut them to the heart? Paul or Peter says to them, you're the ones that killed the Lord of glory. You're the ones that have killed Jesus. And boom, the Spirit works to cut them to the heart. They realize their guilt they realize they were the ones who murdered the Messiah, and they ask him, what then shall we do? As I tried to highlight last time, this is a great example of amazing grace. Peter says to them, you're the ones who killed him. And here, mercy is held out towards them. Here, grace is given to them, the ones who killed Christ, the ones who handed him over, the ones who said, crucify him, crucify him, have been cut to the heart by the work of the Spirit. God's grace is good. God's grace truly is amazing when you consider who it is that Christ or the Spirit works to save here. So these men, they were cut to the heart. They ask a good question. What then shall we do? So Peter says to them, he gives them the answer, verse 38. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift 
of the Holy Spirit. Notice we see repentance and baptism. Now, certainly they must believe. And when we see the language of repentance, certainly that is implied here uh, with what we our belief is implied in the language of repentance here in verse 38. It's just a call to turn, a call to look to the Lord in faith, a call to turn from their sin to the true and living God. Repentance and faith are certainly two sides to the same coin when it comes to conversion. When we think of repentance, theologically, it is that spirit-wrought change of mind. It is a spirit-wrought change of mind and sorrow over sin. Before we are changed, we think sin is great. We think sin is wonderful. We hate God Almighty. We need someone to change us. We need someone to work in us. And repentance is a gift, according to Acts 5, Acts 10, and 2 Timothy chapter 2. It is something that God does, something that the Spirit gives, even though we are the ones who exercise that repentance. Now, regeneration precedes repentance, but in any case, repentance is a gift. Faith, then, is that turning unto. Faith is believing upon Christ. The Philippian Philippian jailer asked, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So how are you saved? You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There is mercy and forgiveness in him. But even as we have a fuller picture with this language of repentance, repent and believe and come to him. True repentance as well does not blame shift. True repentance is a sorrow over your own sin, recognizing how sinful you are and how much you need somebody else. So that's what Peter says here. Repent, turn from your sin, turn to the true and living God. And it's a work of the spirit in their lives. Then notice he also says, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. This is a commandment of God in Matthew 28, isn't it? When he says, enroll, go therefore, enroll as disciples, baptize them. The language there in Matthew 28 is, it is a command. If you are a Christian, you must be baptized. Now, baptism does not save But baptism still is important, isn't it? That's why, again, we get squeamish when we see some of the language in Scripture. One writer says, water baptism is not a cause of salvation, but a picture. And as such, it serves both as a public acknowledgement by those present and a public confession by the convert that one has been spirit baptized. And one who's been spirit baptized is not someone who speaks in tongues, but one who's been spirit baptized is one who's been regenerated. One for whom God has worked internally. Baptism is an outward sign of an inward work. It's an outward sign of the remission of sins inwardly. It's an outward sign of the cleansing of sin inwardly. That's why it seems very squeamish to us. That's why for us, we want to make sure we're not Roman Catholic and say that baptism is somehow like medicine where you take it and bing, you're saved. But it still is very important. And we see it as a baptism in the name of Jesus, characterized by the forgiveness of sins. We have a debt that we owe to God, and God in his mercy forgives us. That's the language of forgiveness. It's debt language. It's financial language. And God in his mercy has done away with that debt. And he does even more than that. He fulfills the obligations that we owe unto God as our surety. Uh, he has our surety who fulfills those obligations but there is mercy and forgiveness in him to just erase it. There's sins I will remember no more. 
I will forgive their iniquities. That is the promise of the new covenant. And baptism is an ordinance. Baptism is a sign of the new covenant. It's a sign of the forgiveness of sins in one's heart. Now, this is a bit polemical, and we are dealing, I'm going to deal with paedo-baptism or infant baptism. A lot of Reformed folk believe in baptizing babies, not that it's baptismal regeneration, but they believe it's, you know, a sign, and hopefully later on they'll confess or profess. But I have to highlight certain things. And a lot of that, what they like to say is that baptism replaces circumcision, right? Circumcision is the initial rite, and then baptism is the initiatory rite for the new covenant. Baptism and circumcision are not one for one. Circumcision of the flesh goes with circumcision of the heart, doesn't it? Not baptism. Circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart. Outward, inward, okay? But there's an asymmetrical connection between baptism and circumcision. Baptism's uh, Old Testament backdrop is not circumcision, but it's ritual washings. It's the purity rites. So when John the Baptist comes on the scene, he starts baptizing people. They're like, what's he doing? Because they have the, uh, the idea of cleanness and uncleanness in their minds. Bach says in Jewish thinking, where the context of clean and unclean is common, the washing imagery points to a cleansing that makes one clean so that God can be present. Since uncleanness means that one cannot draw near to God. In the present context, the baptismal washing that comes with repentance signifies an inner cleansing that allow the person to be indwelt by the Spirit. Outward sign of an inward work. Now, what's interesting is baptism and circumcision are never found together in the New Testament, except in one place. That's Colossians chapter 2, or the words, I should say, are not found in the New Testament, except in one place. In Colossians Chapter two, and it's funny, he's not talking about physical circumcision. 2.11. You're like, why is this so important? It's because, again, a lot of Reformed folk believe in baptizing their babies. Verse 11, in him, you are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. So he's distinguishing there between outward and inward. It's the work of God by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. That spiritual work, that spiritual change, which baptism signifies, verse 12, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So circumcision is not the Old Testament backdrop to baptism. Ritual washings are circumcision of the flesh and then circumcision of the heart, that asymmetrical connection there but baptism is still important baptism is still blessed baptism is that sign of cleansing and so then notice what else he says you shall receive the gift of the holy spirit now this was promised in acts chapter one we see it's in our visible work in acts chapter two the outpouring in general we see and we know even from the scriptures that uh, according to John 3, that when it comes to regeneration, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. But the language here has the idea that perhaps the Spirit is not only the one who works in regeneration, but the one who is given through faith. He says that you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
We could use the language of the epistles, a seal, a guarantee, or first fruits. Is the fact that if you are a believer, you not only have to have the Spirit work in you in regeneration, but you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a down payment of the new heavens and new earth. You have the indwelling of the Spirit as a glimpse and foretaste. We have the agent of new creation who indwells us now. We wait for the fullness to come in. We have the down payment now so that we know that we shall have the fullness when Christ comes back and Christ returns. So if you repent, if you believe, baptize, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is important when we talk about Holy Spirit, because that helps us when we come to verse 39. For the promise is to you and your children. Infant Baptists like to use the Abrahamic covenant, right? As a uh, circumcision was for Abraham and his children. So they perhaps see a correlation here between you uh, promises to you and your children. There's a couple problems, I think, with the context that we see here in verse 39. Again, who is the promise? I gave it away. Who is the promise here? The Spirit. The Spirit is the promise that is given. Not, uh, not the idea that it's you and your seed. The idea here is that if you repent and believe, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise of the Spirit is for you and your children, those who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call. So he's highlighting the inward working. He's highlighting the inward change. And what a good pedo, a good pedo, one who doesn't fall into baptismal regeneration would say is it's just a promise for the, uh, for the parents. It's just a promise. And hopefully later on, they'll find confirmation. They'll find profession of faith there. But as the Bible highlights, especially in Acts, faith and repentance precede baptism. Faith and repentance precede baptism. And notice the recipients of this promise, you and your descendants. Now, this doesn't have to mean immediate seed, and I don't think it means immediate seed or immediate children. It could just refer to, to, refer to descendants who come afterward. Many of the covenants speak this way as well, not just immediate seed, but those who come afterward as well. So it's not necessarily referring to uh, the idea of you must baptize your baby after eight days. I just want to say something here as well. As a credo Baptist, we do believe with Pado Baptists when it comes to, we agree when it comes to the baptizing of adults, right? We believe what baptism signifies. We believe all those things. We just dis uh, disagree on the infant part of it. But brethren, as a Baptist, I'm not against child baptism. And what I mean by that is I'm not against baptizing children upon profession of faith. I'm against baptizing children based on their parents, and after eight days. That's what I'm against. I know we need to be careful. I know sometimes with children, it's difficult and it's hard, but we still believe it's upon uh, on a credible profession of faith that one ought to be baptized. And so even here, the promise, that is the indwelling of the Spirit, is for you and your children and all to all who are afar off. Probably here refers to Gentiles, 
So it's not just for Jews, but it is for Gentiles in the context. Isaiah 57, 19 speaks this way. We're going to look at Zechariah 6, talking about those who are far off, who are brought in. Paul then takes that language in Ephesians chapter 2 and applies it to the church, applies it to Gentiles. Those who are far off, Gentiles, are now brought in to the household and people of God. So the promise, the inward dwelling and work of the Spirit, Paul's or uh, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, when he says you're going to wait for the promise of the Father, what's he waiting for? The Spirit. And even in Ephesians chapter 1, the Spirit is called the Spirit of promise. So it's not talking about the promise to Abraham and his seed, although certainly in Abraham all the families of the earth shall be blessed, but it's not a promise for infant baptism. It's this work of the Holy Spirit being indwelt in those who are Christ's, those who are God's. Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. You shall receive the gift of the Spirit for the promises to you and your children who are afar off. And notice the qualification, as many as the Lord our God will call. He adds the qualification there. So let's say that it did refer to children, as many as the Lord our God will call. That is, again, it's based upon faith. It's based upon profession. It's based on hopefully something visible. And it's based on the inward work of the Lord And the Lord works not by virtue of a parent's faith, but he works in individual people. That's why children must believe on their own. It's not their parent. They can't cling to their parent's faith. They must believe on Christ alone. Now, brethren, I know we all love our children. There is an emotional element. We all want our children to be saved. And eventually, that's a lot of ways what it boils down to, doesn't it? Emotions. We all have them. We all want them. We all want our children to be walking with the Lord. But sometimes, and a lot of times, that doesn't always happen. And the Lord tells us, Peter tells us, as many as the Lord God, our God will call. Now, while our children still have breath, we pray for them, right? We pray for their souls. We pray for their salvation. But brethren, we have to give their souls up to God, don't we? And even if it's in the Lord's will not to save them. That's tough. That's hard. That's difficult. But we give them up to him. As many as the Lord our God will call. And certainly that is connected with what we see in verse 21. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's all in the context of faith and repentance. All in the context of profession. All in the context of the work of God. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But those who call on the name of the Lord have been called by God. As many as the Lord our God will call. Salvation is wrought by God. And certainly baptism follows after profession of faith. The pattern is clear. There's other ways that infant Baptists like to argue for infant baptism. They like to say in the Gospels when he says, let my children come to me. Let my children come to me. Well, A, there's no baptism there. Again, B, we're not against baptizing children, right? Upon profession of faith. And C, that text is talking about how people need to have childlike faith, right? Trust in God, look to him. The kingdom of God is like, he's using it as a comparison. So that's not really a great one. What about households? 
in Acts. Well, it's pretty vague there. And certainly it's not wrong to see that they were baptized with, with, that is the implication is the household heard and believed. And as well, typically the way households operate at that time is you had multiple generations living together, right? So they just as a catch 22, they just said, boom, the whole household, right? Just a general reference to everybody in that household. But in any case, it's just a general statement. Another way, too, to argue why circumcision is, was ne not necessarily a sign of covenant community was the second generation. When was the second generation circumcised? John or Joshua 5. That means they wandered the wilderness for 40 years before they were circumcised. So that's a lot. I know there's a lot of polemics there, but it needs to be dealt with, I do think. But thankfully, God is good. God saves. We agree a lot with a lot of our Pato brothers and sisters. We disagree on this point. But then notice verse 40, the salvation God, uh, God brings. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them. So Acts 2 is just a summary of what Peter says. He said, but uh, again, at 40 is a summary of what he says. Be saved from this perverse generation. What's interesting is this perverse generation is a dig against the Jews. God is rejecting ethnic Israel here as a special people. It is the church who is the special people, but perverse generation is used in Deuteronomy 32, five as a reference to the people of Israel who rebelled against God in the wilderness. So he's equating the ones who rejected him, rejected Christ as the ones who rebelled against him in the wilderness. They were always a stiff-necked people, as Stephen says, but be saved from them, from this perverse generation. So he exhorts them with many things, calls them to be saved. This is the response to gospel preaching, repentance and faith. If you're an unbeliever, believe on Christ. If you're an unbeliever, look to him and you shall be saved. If you're an unbeliever, turn from your sin to the true and living God. For you have a great debt that you owe to him, but in Christ that can be forgiven and taken away. He is merciful and good even to forgive the ones who said, crucify him, crucify him, believe upon him and you shall be saved. So that's the call to believe. Let's then look secondly at the duty of believers in verses 41 and 42. Notice in verse 41, we see the prerequisites for membership. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day were about uh, that day about three thousand souls were added to them. So notice they hear it, they accept it, they believe it. Tied in with the call to, to the, the ties in with the call on the name and repent idea here. They were baptized. They obey. They are baptized right away, and God is pleased to add three thousand members to his church. Three thousand souls were added to them. Now, what's interesting is the language of added is technical. They were added to a specific number of people that were already existing. They were added to a specific type of group. I know there's no specific command. Well, actually, I do think there is, but to be a member, right? But membership is very much implied in the scriptures in many different ways. I do think the command is actually in Matthew 28. When he says, make disciples, the way the grammar is used there, I think it's saying, enroll as disciples, that is, enroll them to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know membership can be a touchy subject in our modern context, right? Not, not a lot of people like to talk about membership, but we must talk about membership and what it is and the importance of being joined to Christ's church. 
And certainly that's a good prerequisite in verse 41. They received his word. They are baptized. That's what we look for. A credible testimony, a proper understanding of the gospel, baptism, and certainly their lives are not, you know, there's some evidence of sanctification in their lives. That is the prerequisite for membership. Even our confession in a Reformed Baptist church doesn't require full subscription to our confession. Now, all who wish to be elders, all who wish to be deacons must subscribe fully to our confession, but our confession does not even require that in chapter 26, uh, uh, chapter 26, paragraph two. It is a credible profession and it is baptism and it is no unholiness of conversation is the language there. But there is this idea, but the language of verse 41 highlights gladly received were baptized and 3000 were added to them uh, to uh, to them that day. Now, again, membership. I might push buttons, but that's okay. I'm kind of in a pushing button kind of mood. Again, it's because a lot of people don't like to talk about membership. But think of Matthew 18 for a second. How do you excommunicate someone who's not a member? So if you're not a member, who are you accountable to? And we think about the language of membership too. In a lot of ways, I've heard many theologians say that membership is like a marriage, isn't it? I'm not saying you can't leave churches for legitimate reasons, but so often we sometimes leave churches for illegitimate reasons. There are a lot of legitimate, but some illegitimate reasons. But membership in a lot of ways is like a marriage. You must bear, you must forbear, you must be gracious. All those things are involved. But if one who is not a member and hasn't been a member for a long time, it's like someone who wanders, isn't it? Someone who's not been a member of a church. I know, I know there's, no, there's no perfect church. I understand that. I, there's, we're not perfect. There's no perfect church on this side of heaven. But find the closest thing to what you believe. And whether it's our church or another church, join it. Because membership is so vital and so important, isn't it? We must be part of the body of Christ in that way. And someone who has never been a member all their life, if we go to that marriage type language, is like God proposing to you. And he's saying, eh, isn't that like what it is? God has said, I've saved you. I've changed you. Now be part of my church. Why won't you join the church? You've been part of a church perhaps for a long period of time. The church has popped the question. And you're like, I'm waiting for something better. Right? Isn't that what it's kind of like? You see, membership is vital. Membership is important. Again, I don't care if it's our church or another church. Join a church and be part of that church. Be faithful in that church and love that church. Ask not what your church can do for you, but ask what you can do for your church. Because without that important accountability, who are you really accountable to? It is so vital it is so important. And sometimes I even hear people talk about how they want to be an elder. They want to be a part, you know, important. They want to you know, preach the word, but they never join the church. They bug me more, by the way. They drive me more nuts because they want to be something. They want to preach, but they can never settle anywhere and prove their worth in the basics of the Christian walk, right? Membership is vital. Churchmanship is vital. Churchmanship is very important. So again, I'm sorry. I'm not really that sorry, but, but, you know, again, we need to think about these things. We need to ponder these things. Membership is vital and important. And then notice in verse 42, what the duties of members are. 
And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayer. So when you join a church, here's how you're supposed to live. Devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching. It's a paraphrastic, and the language there implies it's continual. That is, be present on the Lord's day, hear the word preached, be in your word. The apostles' doctrine and teaching. That's the emphasis that is there. Secondly, fellowship. Now, I do think fellowship here doesn't necessarily refer to shooting the breeze after the service, although that's important. I think the language of fellowship here has the idea of finances. Koinonia is used often in financial situations. It's used in Romans 15 to refer to material goods, 2 Corinthians 8, 3 and 4, money sent to Jerusalem, Hebrews 13 and 16, uh, verse 16, loving those in need. Now, we have a, certainly commonality in the faith, commonality in the truth, commonality in those things. That's important. But giving, right? Giving to the truth or giving to the church to be able to help those in need, to make sure the pastor is fine. Again, I hate talking about that, but it's just the way it is. How much should one give? You give as one is able. Cheerful giving, according to the book of, books of Corinthians. So fellowship. So apostles' doctrine, fellowship. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper in the breaking of bread. Now, it can have a general meeting enjoying bread together, but can also have, and in this case, I think refers to the idea of the Lord's Supper. We celebrate it once a month in the evening, right? That, I, I'm not going to lie to you. That's so that you come in the evening. Like that's a, you know, that's part of it. Come in the evening and enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. It's important to do that. And that's why I announce it before the, before the week before so that people can plan ahead for that very thing. The Lord's Supper is important. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is important for the church, for the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread. So that's important. And then lastly, prayer. Prayer is hard, isn't it? Prayer is hard individually. Prayer is even harder in an age of technology where we just do this all the time. In our mind, we have the attention spans of a squirrel. Like they're so tiny and small. We don't have any. Like we just hardly pray. That's why public prayer is important because we have to focus when we're there, right? We do have prayer. Certainly we pray during the service. We have prayer at 930. It's important to be able to gather with the people, a public expression of praying to God Almighty. And prayer is a means of grace because God has given us a promise, isn't it? In it, hasn't he? If you pray according to my will, I will give it to you. You ask, you have not because you ask not. That's not, Lord, I really, really want a cool car. That's not what it's saying there. But if you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling and feel the countenance of God lifted from you, should you not pray Hebrews 13? Lord, you have promised and said, you will never leave me and forsake me. Lord, never leave me and forsake me. We pray God's promises back to him because he's graciously said in his word how we ought to pray and how he's willing to bless us in those prayers. And especially when we come together as God's people to pray together, one thing that's very good about that is it takes the attention off ourselves. How often is it when we pray, we pray 95%, 99% of ourselves. I'm like, oh boy, I feel terrible. I didn't pray for the other people. No, they're 1%. That's why gathering together is good to pray with one another and pray with one accord. And may I say, praying with one accord doesn't mean everybody prays all at once, by the way. 
that's just a bunch of individuals praying, right? Mm-hmm. And nobody can hear. Let's just be honest too. When we, I remember used to do that. I'm like, I can't understand a thing I'm saying because everybody else is praying. Mm-hmm. What one accord means is one person prays and everybody silently is praying along with them. So that at the end, when you say, amen, it's not just wrote amen. It's amen. I believe what they said. I trust what they said. That's absolutely right. Amen. That's what one accord means. But this is what God has laid forth for us right away in the New Testament church, what the church should be. Doctrine, generosity, means of grace with the bread and with prayer. That's it. And to just give a little dig to those who believe in Pentecostalism, which you're still my brother, sister in Christ, that's fine. But notice he doesn't say tongues or prophecy or any of that here. Apostles teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. How often we neglect these things. The best things for our souls. So brethren, that is the duty of believers. Let's then look thoroughly and finally at the life of the early believers. Verses 43 through 47. Don't worry, I'm coming to an end here soon. I do believe in a place for signs and wonders, which I tried to highlight. It's a sign during the apostolic age. And notice, fear came upon every soul, I think, in the church there. And many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. So God works to advance the messianic age. Certainly, signs and wonders were part of that initial advancement, but the pattern throughout the rest of Acts really is preaching, and the signs and wonders affirm that very preaching. They serve to testify who Christ is, but through many, uh, they did many signs and wonders through the apostles. Now, notice they have this common love, verse 44. Now, all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So notice all who believed, so the believers are caring for one another primarily first. They had all things in common. I do think it's not just goods. And I'll explain what I mean by goods in a second, but I do think it has to do with the faith. Certainly we see that language, the common faith in Jude chapter three, a body of doctrine that they held to. They had that in common in the Lord Jesus Christ, but they also cared and helped one another. Verse 45, I'm all for generosity. I'm all for caring for one another, but verse 45 does not teach communalism. Doesn't mean we all buy a plot of land, we build a bunch of homes, and we all go live there and have a church in the middle of it. That's called a cult, by the way. You don't want to be a cult. And the Bible does say that we can have our own things. I mean, the eighth commandment, you shall not, I mean, you shall not steal. That implies we get to own our own things. And brethren, I love you all very much, but I don't want to see you every day, by the way. I just don't. I just love you all. But, you know, we would all bite each other's heads off after five minutes. Because one thing people who have these visions of utopia don't realize, we still sin. We still have remaining corruption. We're still terrible. So doctrine of sin helps temper us in these ideas. And a doctrine of sin is important, which we're going to highlight tonight in Ecclesiastes chapter seven. There is no just man and no one who does good all the time. And then you know what he says, actually, he says, don't lean in and listen to your servant who curses you. Just let it fly. You know why? Well, come tonight and I'll tell you why, but I'll give you a, I'll give you a, a precursor. But he does say after that, he goes on to say, He says, you've done that very thing. You probably cursed your servant. 
Sin, the doctrine of sin is an important thing to remember. That's why dreams of utopia and saying kumbaya are just not going to be part of this present age. That's what the age to come is. But this whole idea of being communal and having this wonderful life, it's just not going to work. And some people might say, well, they sold all their possessions, verse 45, and divided them among all. Probably what the language means here, and also in Acts 5, I mean, Acts 5 tells us it's not wrong to have your own possessions, right? You can voluntarily sell your possessions. That is what I think is implied here. Perhaps the idea is they had extra possessions. That is, the richer people, the more wealthy people in the church, maybe they had an income property. Maybe they had a bunch of different types of land. They sold that land and brought it. You really think they sold everything and they're just not going to, they're just going to live in a hut somewhere? I mean, we got to think a little bit with, with respect to what is going on. Certainly there's generosity. Certainly that is good. We must be generous with one another. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but it's not this. Let's all live together and sing, you know, songs around the fire. They divided them among them all and notice as anybody had need. And remember, this is different than the 21st century where you can fly to another part of the country and you can find a job in another part of the country. Most of these people were agrarian. Most of these people engaged in their family's business, right? So if they were from some other part of the world and the only church in the world was Jerusalem, they moved to the only church in the world and they really would have had need. It really would have been hard, really would have been difficult. That's why they sold their possessions to help one another. So generosity is good. Caring for one another is good. We're not meant to be, you know, A, islands unto ourselves. Joining a church is important. We're not meant to be a cult. So somewhere in that spectrum is probably a good thing for the people of God. And generosity certainly is important. They were very generous in caring for one another. And we see that continue in verse 46. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, perhaps this is when they did, you know, engage in meals with one another, or perhaps it was Lord's Supper, possibly from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. So it's an overall description of their joy. They loved being together. They loved the salvation they found. They loved being with the brethren and notice they, God, they praised God and they had favor with all the people. Again, that's why we're not supposed to be hermits and build a compound. We're still supposed to be a witness to the world, right? The church is the pillar and ground of truth. The church is primarily for believers. Hopefully unbelievers come in and they're saved. But that doesn't mean the church shouldn't be a witness. That doesn't mean Christians shouldn't be a witness. We live in the world, but we're not of the world. Father, I pray that you do not tell. It's not that you do uh, Father, I pray that you do not take them out of the world, but I pray that you protect them while they are in the world. That's the language of John 17. But they had joy. They had witness. They were praising God. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. And notice again, who does it? The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. It is a work of God with the word, calling people to turn from sin to God. God gives the church his marching orders, preach the gospel, preach Christ and him crucified, 
And the Lord works. The Lord changes. The Lord moves. It's important to remember that we must engage in a God-honored, God-ordained way of churchmanship and worship. Not adding to it, not taking away from it, but what God has said in his word. And he says, preach the word. And brethren, will God not honor it? Will God not work in this way? Will God not change? Will God not work with his word? God is pleased to move in mighty ways, to save sinners, to strengthen saints, to work among his people. Bruce says it is the Lord whose prerogative it is to add new members to his own community. But it is the joyful duty of the community to welcome to their ranks those whom Christ has accepted. Brother, membership is a privilege. Membership is a gift. Membership is a blessed thing. For we've been saved by Christ. We've been called to join his church, to be amongst his brethren where the gospel is preached. And that's the purpose of the church, to preach Christ and him crucified and trust that God will work by the spirit. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for your scriptures. We're thankful for the work of Christ, Christ at your right hand, who has sent forth the spirit. And we know, oh God, that you've given us marching orders as far as what the church must be about. As we go into all the world, may we enroll as disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that you've commanded. And we're thankful for the promise, oh God, that you are with your church, even to the end of the age. We know that we still have much struggles. We have much remaining corruption. We are weak and feeble. But we're thankful for what you've said in your word concerning your promises, concerning the gatherings, concerning what the means of grace is, concerning what the duty of members is. We pray, oh God, that we would take these things to heart, that we would not neglect the apostles' teaching, not neglect fellowship, not neglect the bread, uh, the partaking of the bread, and not neglect prayer. Please forgive us, O oh God, for how often we do such things. Our minds truly are prone to wander. Our minds truly are prone to think of other things. We pray, O oh God, that we would appreciate the, the, the purpose of your church, the gatherings of your people, and knowing especially that it is Christ who works and saved, Christ who is amongst us, and Christ who saves. So we pray, O oh God, that Christ would work by the Spirit to save sinners this day. To those who call on your name, thank you that you call them, O God, and may you do so this day. And we pray, O God, for your saints. We pray that you would strengthen us by your word and by your spirit to be better conformed to what your word says. Please forgive us for all of our failures, and thank you that there is forgiveness in Christ. And we do pray, O God, in all things you would be glorified. We pray that you be with us now by the Holy Spirit. Amen.